Hi, and welcome to the Taz Magazine Debrief. This is the 13th of August issue. Uh, we're recording this on the Monday of what is exams results week. So calm before the storm, you might say. So hopefully when you're listening to this or reading your issue of Tez after this, um, everything's gone very well. But before that, this week, John is absent. So we've got Simon Locke joining. Simon, welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me. Is this your debut on the podcast? I've done one before, but um, I've made it seem with my technical um, hiccups in the last half an hour that it is my first time. <laughs> so apologies <laughs> for that. Well, that's all right. It's sounding good now, so that's the main thing. And uh, alongside second timer, Simon, is regular guest, Gronya. Gronya, hello. Hello, hello. How are you? I'm very excited because it's results day tomorrow. I feel like it's Christmas Eve. <laughs> well, that, that's a positive stance on it, so I think we should... The only person in the country with that sentiment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like, that, I like that positive stance. Let's, uh, let's run with that into the, uh, into the first... <laughs> Uh, feature of the of the uh, of podcast so let's go from here Simon you're going to talk us through the first feature which is something you've written actually a very interesting topic on well-being and what schools can do around well-being for staff and pupils and all that kind of stuff very important topic so yeah tell us all about it thanks Dan uh yeah I'm honored this is also my first cover feature so sort of few debuts or almost debuts in the bag. Uh, yeah, I got the pleasure of speaking to um, Professor William Kaiken, who, uh, Willem Kaiken, sorry, who's the um, yeah, Professor of Mindfulness and Psychological Sciences at Oxford. Um, you, you might know him, he's done a lot of research uh, into mindfulness, sort of forefront of, of well-being and is, is doing at the moment a seven-year study into the effectiveness of mindfulness in schools. So although those results are yet to be published. We we did have a really good chat um, back in July. It was actually on Freedom Day. Uh, so it was a real pleasure to actually speak to him in person. Um, 18 months since I think I'd done a, an in-person interview, we were able to go to his house um, and he was an absolute gent. Uh, welcomed us in, made us a nice drink. It was probably about 32 degrees outside. So we were all pouring sweat when we got there. And he was very patient. But yeah, we, we had a big chat about you know, the, the well-being challenges schools are going to face in September and, and have faced, you know, in the last 18 months with, with everything that's gone on. Um, and just a, the importance of a kind of a holistic view of well-being and joining it up with academic subjects and, and making sure it's embedded all throughout the school, not treating it as a sort of bolt-on. And that really came through in, in everything we spoke about, really. Um, we also talked about the sort of research side of well-being and, you know, how great schools have got about using research-based teaching, but maybe is there a lack of research when it comes to well-being and the, and the effectiveness? Um, and our schools, you know, is, is there a gap there? Um, so we spoke about that and, yeah, it, it, was, it was really fascinating. I mean, you have to read the, uh, the interview and actually there's a, there's a podcast to go alongside it coming out on Friday. So you'll Either way, you'll get the full the full details. Uh, that's that's good, yeah. Because, like you said, the, the piece really brings up a lot of themes. And I imagine you've you've had to condense down, you know, a huge interview to a, even even now it's a long written piece. But there's probably more you did you spoke about you couldn't include. But you, you touched on this. I thought the thing that really stood out for me was when he says about the idea that to think of well being and academic learning and academic achievement as as separate things is a sort of zero sum game, and that really the two go hand in hand and it, and it seems sort of actually as we talk about this more in society it seems obvious doesn't it like or maybe obvious is too too direct but there's it, a sort of clear rationale for that isn't there because 
if people are well and happy and like what they do and they're not weighed down by a problem, they're going to be better at their job. They're going to be better to learn. They're going to do better in, in coursework and exams, whatever it might be. And so the fact that now we're finally talking about that, there's research going on to that, that seems like it can only be a good thing for both people's happiness and, and society's happiness as a result, but also educational outcomes, which is what schools are sort of primarily aimed at. It's a really positive piece, isn't it? And I think that 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 comes across so clearly when he's talking about his poor grandfather, who sadly died um, so early, like in his early 50s, and lived what we would describe now as a really unhealthy lifestyle. But at the time, that was just normal. Like People did smoke and eat a lot of red meat and not regularly exercise. And he's talk- he speaks about how this time after the pandemic, there's such a focus on well-being and mental health, and we're, we're all... We're all so much more aware of it than we were 50 years ago, 100 years ago. And, you know, this is our time, isn't it? This is a time where we can sort of think about what do we actually know makes for a healthier, better lifestyle mentally. And we can start making those changes that perhaps that we'll look back on the way we lived, I don't know, t- 10, 20 years ago in that same way that we we reflect on people who smoked and ate lots of um, bad foods and it's it's interesting isn't it that that kind of shift and how, what changes that will mean for the future yeah it's it's interesting it, it it is a really positive piece and it it didn't have to be because you know schools are they do face a massive challenge in september but the way william looked at it was like well you know actually this could be a real opportunity for not just schools but society to kind of take stock and and address well-being and make it an explicit thing that we talk about more i know there's been a change in that over the last few years but this could be a real turning point and and yeah it was a really positive conversation well i and it, the other thing that struck me about it in a way in a way this doesn't undermine the piece but it's an interesting adjunct to it is it the final bit you talk about it, he says about well actually mental health to young people and, what, and the, way, the role schools play in that is only one part of their mental health as their well-being as you'd kind of expect actually and that there's many other variances outside school. And so it also has that element of it's not saying to schools, you are the sole focus of a child's well-being and mental health. And that, that huge pressure that would come with that idea It's very much saying a good school environment that's, that's supportive and offers scope for mental health provision will only be a good thing. But don't feel like if you get it wrong somehow or if you don't create it overnight, it might be a journey to get to the place you want to be. It, you're not, you know, you're not the only thing that's going to in a child's life that's for positive or negative and that's the reminder that school is part of a child's overall life it is not the only part of their life which i actually thought was a good final point because it's a reminder that to do this well is, is important but don't sort of you know add your own sense of like stress or pressure and think oh my god we're not doing it well enough and that's causing lifelong problems for these children again i thought it was important just a balanced point that, she, that he brought up right at the end which i thought was it was nice to see mm, it's so important i think it's it, you, you get such a feeling of pressure and uh, and responsibility when you're a, you're a classroom teacher and you know, a teacher in school, and you think about the children in your care. And it's when you see them go through a, a really hard time and things aren't working well for them, it's awful. It's, it's so hard to stomach and to think that you know I, you wish you could always do more. And I think that's the sort of person that often becomes a teacher, somebody who does really want to help and and make a difference. And we can't beat ourselves up when we can't fix everything and make everything perfect. No, it's true. And that that point, you're right, Dan, it was a really nice point to finish on. And it made me think about, you know, actual techniques like mindfulness, where there's something that children can perhaps take away and take into their life outside of school. Perhaps there's, there is quite a lot of value in that, because although teachers, you know, they can't impact things at home, if, it, if, te- uh, if, 
if children are given coping mechanisms and things like that that they can take away, perhaps there's there's benefit in that. But I think we'll have to wait for Willem's uh, study to be to be fully published before we um, start. Yeah, do we that. do we know when that is exactly? Uh, I think it's in the next couple of months, um, and we've been pro- promised some exclusivity on that. So um, we'll keep you posted. Well, that sounds excellent. So definitely look forward to that. And yeah, it's a, it's a great, inter- great read, great interview. Um, podcast will be there as well, so it might be a good one for people who want to re- listen to the whole thing as well as the written version. I think that sounds great. But yeah, good stuff. So we'll move to feature two now, and actually this sort of does have a bit of a crossover because wellbeing comes up in this. Um, but this is a piece by written by a, a freelance journalist called Molly Balding. And it's about an amazing school in Indonesia, which is sort of like a jungle school almost. It's called um, it's called Green School. It's on it's in Bali, um, and it's a school. Well, I mean, the picture in the magazine alone is kind of worth a thousand words. It's a, all the pupils are all sat on bamboo chairs at bamboo desks inside the middle of the rainforest. Basically, it's an absolutely amazing setting. And it's a school that was founded in two thousand eight by these people, John and Cynthia Hardy, who were um, jewelers based in Bali, and they wanted a school for their daughter, and they couldn't find one that they're sort of with their ethos so they ended up launching their own school not as you do um but it's just an amazing sort of setting where it sets in the jungle it's got a lot of sort of focus on sort of other things like they do thing called um they focus on iq uh, intelligent questioning um there's and well-being is a big focus of what they do you know a child's well-being is more important than their, their grades is a sort of element that comes across but it's quite a pricey school the fees can be quite high up to sort of uh i think it says from five thousand eight pounds to £15,000 a year. So it's clearly not your average school in the country or indeed any country. But just a lovely example of how a school can be thought of differently, but still kind of have that classroom structure. It can have clearly focus on an academic achievement, but something else. And I suppose also the thing that caught my eye more than anything was that kind of environmental element and that idea of like, you know, what can a school look like and how can you make a school that perhaps isn't all plastic prefab and, you know, low ceilings, but something that's a bit more that's modern but but interesting and yeah just just the kind of thing just to sort of offer you a different view of what education is not necessarily it's going to work in every setting but i don't know what do you two think um standout sentence for me has to be rabbits pigs and chickens roam freely around the playground and from time to time a snake makes an appearance <laughs> yes exactly that thankfully we don't get that in the uk but well, there's not usually many snakes but <laughs> I think it sounds brilliant. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a school I could I could definitely get on board with. I like the. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it's obviously a, it's a fee paying school um, where parents have a lot of you know weight when it comes to what what's taught, how the, the atmosphere of the school, and if if fee paying schools like that are starting to. Um, give well-being preference over academics or not well not preference but you know on a, on a level it's interesting to see if if people will still pay the fees and that that relationship i think it's um it's an interesting one it's definitely something that's starting to shift um in the international and pay I, for I agree 100 I, I think i speak to a lot of leaders in the international sector and i think they and the parents which is important sort of are on board with that now they do see it as important. They see well-being is important. They see sort of community outreach is important. I was speaking to some leaders recently mm. about international schools doing a lot more work in their communities, recognising they're part of these countries. They're not apart from them, you know. And I said to them, I said, yeah, but do the parents want the pu- their children, you know, the people spending lots of time doing outreach work? Because as good as it is, it's not. It's time away from the classroom. And they said 100% because that's what a lot of now like university admissions is based on. It's what employers look for. They look, they want graduates who are rounded, who you know understand the, their place in the world and how the world's connected and all this kind of good stuff. And I think this school 
yeah, you know, it gets a high fee paying school, but I think it's showing that those things matter just as much as getting A's across the board or wherever it is. And how you get there is a, there's not like a single route now to that. There can be different paths you can take to, to that ideal. The, the part where it talks about how there's days when pupils don't pick up pens and there's a huge focus on creative arts and entrepreneurial thinking, it makes you realise how the, the policy changes we've had in the UK have meant that the, the lack of focus on the arts and how we've had to put so much more emphasis upon English and maths and like thinking about those buckets for pH and all of those kinds of things have meant you just, you, you can't do things like this. You, you wouldn't be able to take a gamble or, or, or try, try these things out. And it's such a shame. It's such a shame because there's, you know, there's a place for everything, isn't there? And it, it sounds as if what they're doing at this school is something really different. It's, it's you know, and it, okay, they're in, a, they're in a position of privilege because perhaps their students don't have the same sort of needs as other leaders are thinking about the students in their school. Like, okay, you can go a day without picking up a pen, but if you've got learners who can't actually write yet or, you know, are, are leaving primary school and are still not literate, well, then you probably should be spending more time with pens and books. And it's, a, it, you know, it's, you've got to do what's right in your context and for your learners. But some of the ideas in here are just wonderful. And I definitely think there's ways that you could make it work in, in schools. And it would be nice if we had more freedom in the UK to be able to take risks like that. It's funny because I was thinking that your point there is absolutely correct, isn't it? You couldn't do this in every school, or of course not. But but if you were to make a school of this in the UK, I was a bit like, well, where, where could you do it? Because it would be so cold and wet and damp all the time. Whereas <laughs> this school, it's like a lovely, you know, temperate, warm, you know. Oh, 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 do you know what you could do? You could do it under like the globe thing, like you have like the Eden project. Oh, yes, yes, that would be good. Yeah. Well, there you go, yeah. Someone needs to back this, financially back this school. We yeah. could very modern architecture yeah big bubble roman chickens <laughs> again I, I spoke to quite a few international teachers who told me about like animals are a regular interruption you know there'll be a, yeah, a monkey will come past the window and all the kids oh, point out or snakes come through the you know have to get removed by the the, the maintenance staff and they, they just deal with it like it's the most everyday thing and the teachers who obviously come from the uk or whatever are terrified there's this you know 10 foot snake been found in the playground and the main stuff yeah it's fine they'll just throw it over the fence you know it's just it's a different world yeah. oh no and the thought of the spiders yeah. i think i'm fine the monkeys that's okay oh. snakes are not great but you know what spiders are going to draw the line right there Granny is backtracking <laughs> yeah. i started to think about just the chickens. actual practical implications yeah. of this i don't want spiders no, anywhere no, near me maybe i could have like a spider catcher person who could walk around with me at all times and catch all the spiders I don't mind spiders in the wild. I just don't want them near me. Yes, I thought you tweeted about a spider recently you discovered in your house somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that, that had to go out the window. Did you put it out the window? No, 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 no. I was not going to touch that. That was big. That was huge. It was like bigger than my hand. I'm not no. picking that up. How would I get... I've got two small hands. Like it would be... It wouldn't, you need... You well, need also... Men are there for in our house to catch the spiders. Well, also remember that when you go to pick it up, it might, it might suddenly jump up and eat your face. So that's that's the thing about spiders, isn't it? What? No, I'm, jo no, I'm joking. That... I mean, like, I don't like spiders either. <laughs> that, that thing of they're just so like skitty, and the, the, your fear factor is that it's there and it's small, and you go to move it, and you're just going to go. Ah! Is that what you're scared of? I'm always scared they're going to not like bite my face, but like go like go into your mouth or like go into your ear. That's what I'm more fearful of. So mm. there's now just a collection of spiders on your windowsill, waiting for the opportunity to get back inside. Uh... Or something, don't. Do you, are you not scared of spiders? 
Um, I've also got quite small hands, so um, <laughs> I, I give them a wide berth. Well, there you go. So small, small hands, scared of spiders. Big hands, not scared of spiders. That's the that's the able just. That's what we've learned. Well, there you go. See, that's what I like. We, we're talking about outdoor jungle schools, and we're talking about spiders and, and learning and, and all good things. So yeah, it's, it's a wonderful feature. As I, say, I think it's worth the the picture alone is is fantastic, and I think really brings it to life. So it's definitely worth checking out for both insight of the feature but the picture too is a great one one to stick in the staff room maybe and say why can't we have a classroom like this mm. <laughs> excellent right well we'll move to feature three now which is Gronya's choice so over to you Gronya. unsurprisingly i have picked the feature that's advocating reading because it is summer and this is my my season of reading some people get get a chance to read over christmas but i'm i always find that summer's the time i actually find the the space to actually sit and get through my reading list and it's written by Adrian Butain, and he goes through his books that he recommends for for reading for well-being. And he says that, you know, in schools, there's no quick fix, but encouraging your teachers and leaders to read well-being books and, or just to read books for their well-being is a really good idea. And he makes some suggestions. There's some nice things like The Gardener and the Carpenter by Alison Gopink, sorry, by Alison Gopnik. And Teaching Happiness and Wellbeing in Schools by Ian Morris. And he makes lots of other suggestions of really great books. But what I want to know from you two is what's your favourite book to read when you need a bit of a pick-me-up, like an, a feel-good book or books that you've read that make you feel reassured about the world? And the thing is, I don't, I don't think I've got a book that I would go back and read like repeatedly to make myself feel better about the world. I don't know if that's not a usual thing, but <laughs> need, do people have these kind of books? I mean, I've got like books I've enjoyed... But I can't think of anything that I would sort of go, oh, I'm feeling a bit, you know, a bit of feeling a bit down. I'll go and read a sort of... I might put some music on. Not, not like read the no, whole I mean, thing so, again, I mean, but like pick up and read some no, passages No, from. I don't think I do. I think I'd, I'd put music on. Like there's music that you think oh, that cheers you up. But, really? I mean, well, Simon, do you? I can't say... I'm, I'm a slow reader and going back to read a book that I've already read seems like just punishing myself again. It, I've... I've definitely got books that I've read that have boosted my well-being, mm. um, but I don't know whether I'd reread them. I've got, I've got one here that I've an example that I'm more than happy to share with you, which I read recently, which is oh, it is it is a well-being booster on loads of levels, um, and it's not fiction. It's actually the Land of Second Chances, which is a book about the Rwandan cycling right. team. Oh, um, wow. Is that allowed? Does that, yeah. Can I talk about that? Yeah. We don't have rules in this <laughs> this game. This is fine. You can suggest what you like. Um, and I've only read it once, obviously. It took me a long time. Um, but yeah, it's um, set in Rwanda, obviously a country that's had its, um, you know, dark periods, as we, as we all know. Um, the cyclists, a lot of them have either lived through the genocide, genocide or family who, who were killed. Um, the team owner and the coach both have quite sort of dark pasts. Um, as the title suggests, Second Chances, it's about it's a lot about redemption, but it paints a beautiful picture of Rwanda coming out of a, a tricky period. And it's it's yeah, it's a good it's a real good one. There's some dark bits. I've I've got to warn you, there are mm, some very dark imagine. bits. But, um, but there's light at the end of the tunnel. Um it's a great book. And it's about cycling. So <laughs> on, on yeah, definitely. Number of levels. Well, well Gronya, what about then you? Because I'm presuming you're going to read off loads of books that you return to regularly. Yeah, I, lo- I I read a lot of poetry books again as well. Like if, if I think about books that I'll if I if I want to read to like mm. cheer myself up, I love like the A. A. Milne, like the children's poetry. 
and the um I love Wendy Cope Wendy Cope's poetry I always like picking that up and I've got a really old book that was my mum's that's 70s love poetry <laughs> and I always read that to cheer myself up yeah that's they're, nice they're, they're, yeah. they're actually nice. you saying that did make me think actually one book I, I don't I don't think I, I don't go and pick it up when I'm feeling down but I remember reading it two or mm. three times I remember I read it for university course and I definitely read it again when I was a, bit, a few years later just to reread and enjoyed it just as much was The Wind in the Willows which as which I think a lot of people know oh. kind of the various adaptations they've done of it but none of them come anywhere near matching the sort of charm and the whimsy and whatever of the book mm. but the book actually and the book has sort of elements of philosophy weaved through it and there's some there's some amazing mm. chapters. One chapter's called Piper at the Gates of Dawn, which Pink Floyd wrote a song with that title, but it's all very sort of dreamlike bit. And that's a very bit that's never in adaptations. But there's some lovely bits with like Mr. Toad, who's got this wonderful personality where he's incredibly upbeat about everything, just throws off into headlongs and then gets incredibly miserable and, and like, woe is me, woe is me. And then one sort of thing, and he's suddenly back to 100 miles an hour and going, aha, let's go, let's get in the car. And there's a bit where he escapes from prison dressed as a washerwoman and he's eating tea and toast. And I remember reading at university, just like, just laughing my head off with this suddenly this image I was reading of this toad dressed as a washwoman chomping on his toast and I just think it was a very it was a very sort of like this book actually is for all the kind of everyone knows about it if you just read it it is it is a great mm. book it's very funny you can see why it stood the test of time but no, no one can adapt it it can't it's one of those books that just doesn't work with humans playing the people or animated versions of it it's all a bit like but the book just ah it's great yeah I love, I love, love that book. And yeah. that bit where he's dressed as a washer, when he says, we must stop eating. <laughs> yeah, probably, down yeah. More. There's so I many good bits. In fact, I wonder, I wonder if, has anyone ever written anything about Mr. Toad? Because he's such a, he's a character that the older you get, you see him as like, he's fascinating, like psychological study, isn't he? Of like human, humanity, mm. like, is he a bit bipolar? And he's so sort of manic and he's, he's a bit selfish, but then he has these moments of sort of like caring and being aware of himself suddenly and being really like melancholic and it's sort of yeah such a fascinating i'm sure there's like a shakespearean equivalent you know like foul stuff or someone but yeah i don't know i love mr toad oh, ties nicely ties nicely back into the well-being thing dan it sounds like <laughs> mr toad could probably do some mind he definitely could, he definitely <laughs> could. but actually yeah because this this piece going back to the topic is is about well-being books isn't it which is another link to that mm. and i liked the idea to have a book group at school if you're going to get people together for a book group in a way, to theme it on a topic like that, because it'd be so easy. I can imagine mm. a lot of book groups, it's a bit like, you know, everyone turns up with their favourite book sort of thing, and it's a bit mismatched. Yeah. And that is kind of fun, but it could maybe feel a bit like, oh, God, I've got to read something about, you know, a spy mm. thriller or vampire lovers or something. Whereas if it's like, look, we're going to learn read books about this topic, and we're all going to learn together about this topic, and we're going to share our insights on it. That seems like quite a good idea. I don't know, like, is any, have you been in a book group, either of you, or growing did you want at school or anything? Um, So I'm in... A few book groups. How do they know you'd be I, in a few book groups? <laughs> I regularly like dip in and out of. Um, but I've got one of my friends is running a, a book group with her her six formers at the moment, Shabnam, and I'm, you know, she, she listens mm. to the po- podcast, so she's going to really appreciate me telling the story. <laughs> and of oh, this book group, it's been going for about maybe even a year, and she has not finished one of the books <laughs> once. Every single month, she's like, oh, I started it, but I couldn't quite get into it. And it was her idea to start the book group. The poor kids are making the suggestions and Shabs won't read it. So I hope this shames you <laughs> into reading your book for your students. And these are kids' books they're meant to be reading? Young adult. So she's, it's like a, it's a sixth form college. Right, okay. So, you know, they're good books. I think she's just being picky. <laughs> I I just like to come out in support of Shabnam in that in that sense because that's why I'd never join a book group. I would never fi- finish in a book in two weeks. It would give me horrible flashbacks to my university days. 
frantically reading books on the bus before I got to the seminar. <laughs> you know, you see, I've, I've always read, I always try and read like, not always, but I've often like read a chapter before bed at night, whatever I'm reading on the mm. train or just whatever. But eight weeks into new parenthood, I have to be honest, is time to read a book has disappeared entirely. So I haven't picked up a book in quite a little while yet. But um, get some good suggestions here to uh, things to try out. I'm a big fan of cycling. So Simon, and I would definitely <laughs> add that to my Amazon or independent bookseller wish list for Christmas. Dan, I will, I will bring my I'll bring it in, yeah. You worry not. Oh, we can have a book club. Maybe swap. we should have a book club. Now we're going back to the office, we can have a, a office book club yeah. with no pressure to finish the whole book so Simon can That's, join. Yeah. Listeners, perhaps listeners can tweet in and suggest whether or uh, argue whether we should actually set up a book group and do a podcast on, I'm, on I'm those books. Yeah. As long as we sanitise the books between sharing, that's fine. And then we can talk about it. Maybe we should just be honest and be like, you've got four weeks to read the book. And if you haven't, and then you just be honest, like I got to page 72 or 101 or whatever. And that's your input on the book. And you just, just go with it. Because like I say, we're all busy people. Everyone's busy. An honest, an, an honest, honest book. book <laughs> no faking. Oh yeah, I love that. I read the whole thing on Wikipedia, reading the summary. Like, <laughs> Isn't that, isn't, doesn't that happen in, um, is it Friends where that happens? Where she... Yes. And she tricks them into thinking that there's yeah, robots. Yeah. In Wuthering yeah, Heights. Right, yeah. I think that's a good joke, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Robots in Wuthering Heights. That seems like a good a good place to end. But no, so it's, it's um, that's the August 13th issue of Tez. And as you can see, as ever, it offers lots of food for thought, inspiration, discussion points. So we hope you've enjoyed listening to us talk about it. Hopefully you enjoy uh, the magazine when you get it. And hopefully this week has gone well around exams. Um, and obviously on Tez we'll be covering everything that happens and what it all means for the future as well. But otherwise, thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. If you enjoyed listening to this week's issue of the magazine Debrief podcast and want to read more of Tez Magazine online and have it delivered to your door, subscribe now at tez.com forward slash store.